gotta see this. That I was going to do the introduction. I know. I, and I know I wanted we, to. Do it. We, we, like, we literally just said that I was going to do it. And then you. <laughs> I just wanted to, I just wanted to bust your polls. I thought it'd be funny. It's not funny. You think it's funny? It's funny to me. To speak over black people during Black History Month? Because I, I actually don't find it I to be right funny. I walked right into it. Yeah. By speaking over me. After we had agreed that I was going to do the introduction anyway, listeners, I'm working on getting Kendall's behavior together. I have Kendall signed up for various diversity and equity trainings, and hopefully within the next, like, two years, Kendall will learn how to (laughs) behave. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Kendall Kendall just has, like like, a... a pattern of entitlement that I think must come <laughs> from their upbringing as a... It's the Kennedys. Yeah. And you're, like, not even an important Kennedy, too, so you can kind of get away with whatever you no. want. Anyway, my name... A lot of, a lot of just hit and run. ...is Virgil. I am Big Soy Naturals. And you can find me on the internet anywhere that you want at Commodify This. And you should listen to more Big Soy Naturals on Patreon, just so you know, we have one of those. Yes, we do. My name is Kendall. Sometimes you can call me Kenny if I feel like it. Um, And you can find me anywhere on the internet with um, She Herzog. Very cool. Um, And that's anywhere. 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 You can find me anywhere. Cool. Anywhere. Except on Patreon, where you can find me at patreon.com slash bigsoynaturals. Did you see how I introduced myself as Big Soy Naturals? I'm, I'm trying to do a thing. <laughs> yeah. I'm doing a hostile takeover. Um, <laughs> I'm small soy naturals. <laughs> soon, soon it will be a solo podcast, and I will have replaced you oh God. with an artificial intelligent uh, chat bot that will mm-hmm. fulfill your role of speaking over me and doing macro aggressions um <laughs> what, what 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 voice are you going to use for the chatbot microsoft sam oh, okay okay that's very it, you know what that gives me gender euphoria i'm happy about that um, <laughs> um yeah i how are we going to start this one? We, we're going to well, start by saying what the episode is about. The episode yeah, yeah. is proving me right. Because I have long mm-hmm. thought that video games are a form of degeneracy, much like <laughs> scrolling mindlessly on TikTok or like eating whole grain bread, you know, like the, the bread that has mm. the seeds in it, disgusting. Mm. 
degenerate behavior. (laughs) So is playing video games. And today, I'm proving myself right. And I'm proving you, Kendall, specifically wrong. Okay, I'm the okay. I'm the one who tipped you off on Call of Duty, so I don't exactly. Well, I didn't. I, I didn't need to know the specifics on how Call of Duty was bad, <laughs> since I had already declared all video games to be degenerate. So I didn't need to look I'm into saying, it. I'm uplifting, but now that I have looked into your it, rightness. I know that I'm correct. Meanwhile, you hmm. are you're in the slop, like a like a pig in the mud, playing. Uh, Animal Crossing or whatever, which is nearly <laughs> a gateway I'm Disco drug. Elysium. Nearly a gateway Excuse drug me. to um, joining McKinsey on its board of directors, where many of your family members probably reside already. Meanwhile, I'm over here righteously standing outside the Kennedy compound with a sign that says, give me the codes so that when I get it, burn, burn the whole thing to the ground. But you're, but you're in there with your little Tamagotchi, like a, like a pig in the mud. I'll have, I'll have the listeners know I'm busy playing Disco Elysium, which is at this, it is so text heavy that it might as well just be a book that you click on. Well, I read real books that I, that I, I don't have to click anything. I just turn the page. <laughs> well, if you um, are a pay pig, you might recall that we recently released an episode. Oh, wait, Validate, called... Validate's good. Validate's oh, yeah. the only game that isn't, it's not implicated by Correct. any of this. Everything else, mm-hmm. though, mm-hmm. including all the yeah, games you can that purchase you play. Validate. You can purchase Validate and then play it and then delete Steam forever off of your computer and then you'll be done. Um, So, listeners, if you're a pay pig, you might recall that on Patreon, we released a special episode. It was just a regular Patreon episode. You have to stop calling them special episodes. I'm calling them special because they're on a paywall. But it's it's what our pay pigs (laughs) get regularly. It's a regular treat for them. Yes, it's a right. Reg- okay, well, if you're a pay pig, it's a regular treat. If you're not, then it will be special once you give us five dollars on Patreon. <laughs> it will be very special, I promise. Um, so the episode was called uh, "Cat Girls in My Military." It's more likely than you think, and we explored a very dubious claim that e girls on TikTok in 2023 are a psyop led by the genius minds at the in the US military um to recruit uh sweaty little DSA guys looking for a third and that third looking for Lockheed a first Martin. probably <laughs> yeah <laughs> honestly um listen to that you know first if you want to see see what you think of it you don't have um, to it's not necessary, yeah. but like you could listen to it and then you would yeah, then yeah. you would know a little bit more. You would know a little bit more, you would have a little more context, a little more groundwork, a launch pad to leap off of. Um if you recall Prayer Warriors and Pay Pigs, our final installment of Dumbledore's Hole. Damn, I miss being in there. Yeah, yeah I do. I'm sometimes at night. <laughs> I can like almost hear like if I press my ear to the pillow just right, 
I can hear like the cavernous echoes, that little whoosh <laughs> sound of air <laughs> as, as a draft rumbles through. And then I wake up and I just, I get a tear, a single tear comes to my eye. I miss the hole so much. Um, if you recall that episode, um, AI technology is already being used in warfare, despite like nine out of 10 drone strikes not hitting their intended recipient. Not like nine out and of 10, by the way. Literally yeah. nine out of 10. Literally nine out of 10. <laughs> Which is imagine, such an abysmal, an abysmal success rate for anything. Imagine if I released a sunscreen and I was like, <laughs> nine out of 10 people that get this sunscreen. <laughs> Immediately get cancer. <laughs> yeah, they, they break out into boils. <laughs> they st- their skin starts burning and sloughing off. But one person gets skin protection, and isn't that great? Yeah, it works um, one one out of ten times. <laughs> yeah, and you know, we, in that article um, that we tore apart on the Patreon, we uh, they mentioned like video games a lot being a um, an indoctrination tool for the military. Um, Call of Duty specifically, uh, more recently, the military had a uh, esports team that was quickly uh, torn down because uh, it was just, it did not work out. Uh, surprisingly, when you uh, get an easy target in front of a group of, of jeering, horrible, sweaty little keyboard warriors, uh, they will attack with precision. Um, but thinking about those games, we kind of wondered, Carrie Bradshaw style, top down, looking at all of the stuff about warfare. How your top is down? You're you're letting our our little pigs have that mental we're image. Letting, you know, we're we're letting our soy naturals hang out. No, we're we looking top down <laughs> at, at everything. <laughs> Okay, from a bird's eye view, then <laughs> from a drone's eye view, uh-huh. we looked down and we thought we started to wonder how did we get here. Yeah, um, so lots you know. of people have made the comparison between video games and the warfare, uh, like technology that's being used. I um, wanted to raise the voice and perspective of someone who's currently facing a lot of scrutiny, undeserved, mm-hmm. the one and only mm-hmm. Prince Harry. <laughs> I think it might be short for Harrison. Don't know. Prince Frostbite Penis Harry. Is, wait, um, is his yeah. penis frostbitten? Is that yeah, that was, in his, that was in his memoir. He, uh, he got frostbite. He climbed a mountain and he got frostbite mm-hmm. on his pe- on the tip of his penis. Does it work? He just, like, Did he get that. it? He, what happened to I it? Think he, I think he got it fixed. Like fixed, um, like cut off like, or like? I don't know. I would assume as like a, as like a rich monarch, he got like a, like one of the, like almost like um the $6 million man where like he got like a new bionic penis tip. That's huh. what I think. But I I would make that up to get a bionic penis. I'd be like, yeah, mm-hmm. got, it got frostbitten. I need you to give me a better one if I were Prince Give me the Harry. Inspector Gadget ding-dong ding right now. But Inspector Gadget schlong aside, he uh, <laughs> described his joy at firing missiles at enemies when he was a helicopter gunner in Afghanistan by saying, um, let me do my British accent. 
I'm one of those people who love playing PlayStation and Xbox. So with my thumbs, I like to think I'm probably quite useful. If there's people trying to do bad stuff to our guys, then we'll take them out of the game. Which is interesting because that shows that like a baby, like a dog, mm-hmm. he doesn't have object permanence because... And then he's not taking anyone out of a game. He's taking he's, them out of he's Afghanistan. Watching <laughs> he's watching a drone strike like a toddler watches Coco Melon. It's just like all sensories, like no thoughts. Yeah, and Kenny brought up the U.S. military uh, on on Twitch and how that didn't work out. It that is true. It did not work out. The U.S. military does try to make use of the popularity of video games as a recruitment tactic, sometimes with more subtlety than in other times. One time where they lacked subtlety was in 2020 when Twitch had to intervene and tell the U.S. Army to stop doing fake prize giveaways on (laughs) their esports channel um, and stop using the fake prize giveaways to direct people to their Army recruitment page. How were they doing this? Like a Tumblr girl... (laughs) With like a cheat in no, they were literally like link. they were like zubatting it. They were like <laughs> <laughs> Major General Frank Muth, who's the head of the army's recruiting command. So great mind here. He told Think Tech mm-hmm. Hawaii in 2020, esports is just an avenue to start conversation. We go out there. And we have a shared passion for esports, and it naturally develops into a conversation. What do you do? I'm in the army, but of course, things were not naturally devolving into a conversation because the army was using fake Xbox giveaways mm. <laughs> um, to entice their Twitch viewers to to join the army. So when people clicked on the link for the free. Xbox 360 giveaway, they were taken to a recruitment page where they uh, were just told to like enter their personal information details, not given any information about when the actual drawing would occur. (laughs) Just like put your name in and maybe at some point we'll message you back. You'll get a free Xbox. This is very much like um, clicking on an ad for a a free iPod. Uh, yeah, but it's really funny <laughs> to imagine results. the government doing it, being like, "Hey, you're the winner of <laughs> you're the winner of a free iPod Classic," <laughs> and then they just like lure you into a room where you have to join the Navy. <laughs> They're like, "Yo, we've got lots and lots of video games here at base." Mm-hmm. Yeah. Check it out. Listen to what Prince Harry has to say. It's just like playing a game. <laughs> it's it's just like Xbox. Wait, I have a question for you. Oh, yeah. Okay. So you know how when Prince Harry left the UK with Meghan Markle to, um, like, escape racism or whatever, and they, they mm-hmm. came to the United States and they did that interview with Oprah... You know how in that interview they said that they were staying at Tyler Perry's house? Yeah, yeah, I do. What do you think is Prince Harry's favorite Tyler Perry movie? I would say it's definitely a part of the Medea franchise, but you I think, think he's watching like say that it, You think he's watching the Medea movies? 
I think it's not precious. Mm, I think oh, I think he would say it's precious in public. Okay, like if somebody asked, if Oprah was like, "What's your favorite Tyler Perry movie?" He would say Precious. But I think deep down, he's sitting in Tyler Perry's home with him, laughing his ass off at like Medea Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> cool. That's that's yeah. an epic thing for me to imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's an epic gamer moment. Um uh, you know, of course, uh with um esports and recruiting, things aren't naturally devolving into a conversation. Um um just as like a side note, uh the US Army was also caught breaking the constitutional mandate of free speech by banning users who asked what their favorite war crime is. Cool. They should have answered. Yeah, they, they didn't want nice. to. They were they were yeah. protecting their peace. Cowards. And uh, doing self-care by mm-hmm. blocking mm-hmm. the haters. Yeah. Yeah, they were, they were protecting their mental health. Um, official government accounts aren't allowed to monitor or moderate a conversation online like that. You're Sad. not allowed as a, as an official account, like an official public account to delete uh, comments. Um, like for the same reason that a, a federal court ruled that Donald Trump wasn't allowed to block um, his haters on Twitter when he was president. That must have been um, really hard for you him. You're not allowed to. Yeah. Yeah, it it basically goes under the rule of like you're not allowed to um swell public like sway public opinion in your favor simply by like blocking everybody who disagrees with you. Um it goes against several constitutional rights. But let's pay attention to the Xbox giveaway, put a pin in that for later. Um because the US Navy even controls drones with Xbox controllers. Um, which like blurs the line between like war games and war games, war gamer moments, I guess. Um, <laughs> Your Honor, that that wedding I drone bomb was simply a heated gamer moment. You know um, what they should be using instead um, are the Wii Fit controllers. Oh yeah, like just step on the the little plastic platform. Yeah, you should have to like wave your like, hands around. It should look like you're mm-hmm. bowling. It should look like simulated bowling. <laughs> <laughs> you should have to bowl in order to do a, d- a drone strike. Um, <laughs> um, their submarines are also controlled <sighs> using Xbox. Fantastic. We have, a, we have a YouTube clip. <laughs> we have a clip. Yeah, our producer is going to play that for you. Are you a very, very talented gamer, uh, especially on the Xbox? If so, uh, maybe you need to join the Navy and start driving their submarines. Uh, the Navy has recently announced that uh, their most advanced submarines will soon be using Xbox controllers, uh, which I am kind of excited by. Mm-hmm. I, I actually think that that's a really somewhat smart idea in that tech companies like Microsoft, who built the Xbox, or Sony, who built PlayStation, or Nintendo, have figured out kind of ergonomic controls that mm. allow you to control many, many different aspects of a game with, you know, effectively less than a dozen buttons. Okay, it's also known that a lot of video games glorify a pretty, to put it lightly, American-centric viewpoint of war. Call of Duty, which we mentioned earlier, um, 
specifically Call of Duty Modern Warfare, it broke records when it earned more than a billion dollars, which is a little bit under Kendall's net worth. Um, <laughs> it earned more than yeah, a- kind of pathetic, <laughs> if you ask me. Well, okay, it was a billion dollars of revenue in its first 10 yeah. days. So it's probably yeah. exceeded your net worth now, and I bet oh, you feel far. silly for saying that it was so pathetic. Silly. I bet you wish you invested in Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. Because in you have no idea. Every <laughs> night I go to bed sobbing. In Call of Duty Warfare 2, there is a mission to assassinate a character based on Soleimani, who was killed by the Trump administration in 2020. If that wasn't enough for you, there's also a level where players have to shoot drug traffickers crossing the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, This is really just kind of helping me feel more secure in my view that video games are a form of degeneracy and that all of you should be picking up a book. But in Call of Duty Black Ops... Players have to complete a mission to assassinate Fidel Castro, which I think is pretty bold, considering the United States tried to do that, I think, uh, not not several, (laughs) 600 times and failed. (laughs) But if, unlike the United States in the game, you manage to shoot Fidel Castro in the head, you are rewarded. Victory for us. (laughs) Yeah. You are rewarded with a gory slow motion scene to celebrate your win. And then you get a bronze death to dictators trophy. Um, Following that up in Call of Duty Ghosts, which is set in Venezuela, you get to fight against a socialist leader that is modeled after Hugo Chavez. And when I say modeled, um, I took a look at some of these games so that I knew what I was talking about. It's like, it's like their name is like Bidel Bastro, you know? It's, yeah, it's not yeah. subtle who they no, are. No. And their faces look right. almost identical. There's maybe like a hair color change. Not even. A slight even. change There's in like the width of their shoulders. No hair color like, change. <laughs> no change in the width of their shoulders. They look the same. They just have a slightly yeah. different name. Um, but you yeah. fight against... And I believe with the Soleimani one... They um they changed it so that Americans did not assassinate Soleimani. It was uh, Russians. No, so you're thinking of it. They were you're thinking of a li- different Call of Duty thing. Oh, I am. There's just so many. <laughs> yeah, there are there there are many. Um, so in in Call of Duty Ghosts, you fight against uh, Bugo Pavez, and then you have to shoot and kill him from close range. Um, so it's it's cool. Um, I, yeah, I, he's like holding a woman hostage so that the emphasis is very clear that like you need to kill him. It is like absolutely required because otherwise someone else, an innocent will die. Yeah. Or at least a half innocent because she's in his house. But you know, um, it's just like, it's making it very clear that like you out, you are doing the right thing. Not only are you rewarded via trophies, you are given the explicit narrative that like this is something you should be doing and not just something that you are required to do to like push forward the story. You know, just like American movies that uh, make use of military equipment, uh, such as Marvel movies. If you want to learn more about that, you can go check out our friends at Eating for Free. They have an episode 
for that that we will link in the bio. It's not a um, bio because it's because it's not description. Mm-hmm. We're not on TikTok. I have TikTok brain. Yeah, you do. I know. You I are know. like a little iPad baby. Just- <laughs> <laughs> um, but you're my no. iPad baby. Oh. I'm your little iPad baby. You take me to the restaurant. No, I take you, you to re-education camp. And I take the iPad away. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to iPad baby jail for iPad babies. And there will be no iPads <laughs> provided for you. <laughs> oh, I'm shivering. I'm shaking at the thought. Tweaking out. Um, <laughs> so, you know, just like those movies use military equipment, uh, are able to use military bases um, based on like cutting deals with the military to allow them to kind of rewrite scripts, do whatever they want. um, Take maybe possibly a bit of revenue from those movies as well. Uh, The call of duty crew has had some heavy, heavy, heavy consulting um, by the U S military for the sake of accuracy. Um, In September of 2018, the United States Air Force flew a group of entertainment executives, including Call of Duty uh, slash Activision Blizzard producer. Um, Activision Blizzard, if you are not familiar. They own Call of Duty. Like, they own Call of Duty. They also they own, own Crash Bandicoot and World Tony Warcraft, Hawk Overwatch. Pro Skater and uh, <laughs> Candy Crush, among others. Yeah, so, they, so once again, so they own some masterpieces and some failures. Degenerate from <laughs> start to finish. There's no aspect of gaming that is. Excuse you, Tony Hawk Pro Skater Two. It has a it has a fantastic soundtrack. I'll give it that. There you go. But but look but look at what it's a part of. (laughs) That's true. Um, so they uh flew out a bunch of entertainment executives, including the Activision Blizzard producer Coco Franchini to their headquarters at Hurlburt Field. Coco Franchini sounds like the name of, like, one of... You're about to um, say something Donatella so anti-Italian. Sons. Yeah, I knew I it. <laughs> <laughs> and during Black History yeah, Month. Know. I know, I know. No one is... No ethnic minority is safe from you, Kendall. <laughs> <laughs> Coco Franchini. Anyway, um... They drove their head. They drove all these people to their headquarters in Hurlburt Field, Florida, to showcase their hardware and um, to make entertainment industry executives like more credible advocates for the U.S. military. So they flew all these people out. Were like, "Here's all of our tanks and guns," and then I'm sure had a couple of talks about how they can better, you know, facilitate their partnership. It's like. When yeah. you get a little thing in the mail that's like, come, come to our free retreat, but then you get to the retreat and they're just talking to you about a timeshare that you need mm-hmm. to buy. And, and yeah. everything is all about getting the timeshare and you realize that it's, mm-hmm. it's not really a retreat at all because you can't have any of the free wine until you've signed. It's only free wine for people that have signed up for the timeshare in Myrtle Beach, yeah. South Carolina, and then you end mm-hmm. up paying for a timeshare in Myrtle Beach, Beach South Carolina. Yeah, That's and you have the same one thing week in the middle of November, right? In order to go to Myrtle Beach, except they're probably um, getting a little bit more. They're probably getting a little bit more yeah, than one, a little bit more. one week. And 
rest assured, unlike the people who get the timeshare, which is not me, they are not. Yeah, I've never done <laughs> Definitely that. Definitely not Virgil. Never fallen for that. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely never happened to Virgil. But unlike those people who are not Virgil, I'll say that Myrtle Beach is exactly- a be- it's a beautiful place, though. <laughs> Unlike all of the Myrtle Beach goers, <laughs> the exec- the executives that were flown out were stoked. They were having a great time. One Air Force officer wrote about the trip. We got a bunch of people working on future blockbusters, um, you know, and they're talking about Call of Duty, Marvel, those things. Um, stoked about this trip, <laughs> which is a thing I would say about, like, I don't know, going to the, the beach for the day. Yeah, Myrtle Not, Beach. Like, hanging out. Myrtle Beach, South yeah, Carolina. Going to Myrtle Beach for the day. <laughs> You know, hang in ten, maybe uh, in using November. One of those little wake, using one of those silly little wakeboards to kind of like skim across, like the, the yeah, and go and Myrtle Beach November is a perfect time to get on your wakeboard. Yeah. Come visit me in my timeshare, <laughs> which I I got at a great deal in Myrtle I Beach. You, said you didn't. You never fell for this. No, I, I didn't fall for anything. I made use of a fantastic <laughs> you an investment. Yeah, exactly. It was a fantastic yeah, promotion. And why would I want to have a rental property that I only visit like one or two weeks out of the year? A timeshare is a perfect use of my money because it's like now I don't have. I don't have. I don't have responsibility for this place. It's. There's nothing wrong with getting a timeshare in Myrtle Beach that you can only uh, use for one week a year in November. Yeah, it's, it's a really, it's a really, really smart investment. You wouldn't know anything um, about it because you have no. millions of beachfront properties all over Cape Cod or whatever. You get a fucking oh, Martha's God. Vineyard for fun. You don't. You don't know about my Ezra a Koenig, living my Ezra Koenig fantasy, my <laughs> Cape Cod Kwasa, <laughs> my boat shoes, and my fucking sh- tiny little shorts. Kenny is wearing um, boat shoes right now. <laughs> I am. I am. You want to see them? No, dude. That's that's a Patreon tier. That's a one hundred dollar Patreon oh, yeah, tier yeah. for them to see your feet. Yeah. Or hear about oh, your even feet. my shoes. That's that, yeah. That's that's a little too much. Um, you know, patreon.com slash big soy naturals. Um, so Coco Francini and the others on this trip uh, were shown CV twenty two helicopters and AC one thirty planes in action. Um, cool. Both of which are featured really heavily in the Call of Duty games. Um, so these are you know military warships. I guess is what you would <laughs> what I would call them. They're, you know, like these um, planes that are specifically meant for combat. Grimes is going to name one of her kids after them next. Yeah. The CV-22 helicopter. (laughs) The AC-130 plane. Um, This information about this trip um, comes from documents obtained legally under the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, by journalist and researcher Tom Secker. A shout lot out to you, Tom Secker. Thank you. Yeah, shout out to Tom Secker. He a lot of the information we got from this episode is from Tom. So thanks, Tom. Yeah, um, U.S. military in video games goes beyond just consulting and getting flued out. Um, Call of Duty game designer <laughs> and producer. You know that ludicrous song. Sorry, I'm just, I'm just. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hose, I hose in different area codes. 
<laughs> the Activi- Activision yeah. executives are the hoes. And I'm just imagining like the head of the US military, like that's ludicrous. Out, texting like the, just being like, where, where are you? What are you doing right you now? You up? Like, you up? You ready to be f- like, and just flying him out to a cheesecake factory in the middle of like, te- like Florida. Texas. In Florida. Like, right, to right Florida. Next to in Florida. So Call yeah, of right Duty out, right out there. game designer and producer Dave Anthony has said, my greatest honor was to consult with Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North on the story of Black Ops 2. <laughs> there are so many small details we could never have known about if it weren't for his involvement. Are you familiar, yeah, Kendall, thanks. with Oliver North? Yes. Do you do you yes, know about Iran Contra? I do. Okay. So a, a, a quite literal war criminal that he is bragging about uh, here, uh, having known for the sake of accuracy in his shoot 'em up video game um, that is worth millions, if not billions, of dollars. So if you um, don't so know, that's really cool about the Iran Contra scandal. We can't go into it in depth in this episode because there would there would be a lot to say. But suffice it, to it say so that during the Reagan administration, senior ranking Reagan administ- administration officials were secretly selling arms to Iran, which they were not really supposed to be. They were not really supposed to be selling weapons nope. to Iran at the time because Iran was the subject of an arms embargo. So they were already doing something wrong, and then they took the proceeds of that sale to fund the Contras, which was a fascist rebel group in Nicaragua. Mm-hmm. So that's what Oliver yeah. North was doing, and specifically he, against like the socialist government in Nicaragua. Like it was, it yeah, was very specifically was, to take down like a socialist government. That's what they were um, doing so, in the eighties yeah. constantly, and that is yeah. uh, the. One of the the key research figures of Black Ops 2 and Oliver North also features in Black Ops 2. So Dave Anthony, Mm -hmm. I looked into this guy because I see someone who has two first names and I'm instantly suspicious. Why the fuck (laughs) do you have two first names? Get out of here. Get a last name. In addition to being a Call of Duty game designer and producer, in addition to those prestigious prestigious titles, he is an employee of the Atlantic Council, and he has been since 2014. Now, maybe you're at home. Maybe you're in your car. Maybe you've had a couple of beers, and you're asking, what is the Atlantic Council? Well, if you don't know... The Atlantic Council is funded by various companies, NATO and the U.S. government, and the Atlantic Council serves as the military alliance's brain trust. And on the council, they devise strategies on how to best manage the world. So those mines, you can go find out the full list of their board of directors on their website. But some highlights include Henry Kissinger. And Condoleezza Rice, as well as pretty much every retired U.S. general, and at least seven former directors of the CIA. Now, I said various companies. 
I'm I'm just gonna read out a little list of some of the yeah. the companies that are funding it. Please. This is not by any means a complete or comprehensive or even a majority of of these funders. But I just picked yeah, out some full list. that I thought might be interesting. Facebook, Goldman Sachs, the Embassy of the United Arab Emirates, the Rock uh, the Rockefeller Foundation, Chevron. Google, Palantir, Raytheon Technologies, one donor just marked anonymous, Blackstone, BP, Lockheed Martin, Squire Patton Boggs, which I encourage you to look up Squire Patton Boggs and see who is on their board because that's a whole other thing. BlackRock, ExxonMobil, Nestle, Penguin Random House, 21st Century Fox, Bank of America, Boeing, Florida International University, J.P. Morgan and Chase, Microsoft, the McKinsey Foundation, Hulu, Judith Miller, and Salesforce. Um, so Dave Anthony's role on on the Atlantic Council is all the stars are here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, he advises them on what the future of warfare will look like, and he helps devise strategies for NATO um, to fight in upcoming conflicts. There's two more Call of Duty Atlantic Council connections. First is Chance Glasgow, who is a co-founder of Infinity Wards, um, and he oversaw the game franchise's rapid rise, and he's the council's non-resident senior fellow and advises top generals and political advisors on the latest developments in tech. And I saved the best Atlantic Council member for last. Yeah, here she comes. Frances Townsend, girl boss. She is the director of the Atlantic Council, but she holds multiple jobs. She's also the director of the Council on Foreign Relations, and she is a trustee of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. She's also Activision Blizzard's senior counsel and until September 2022 was its chief compliance officer and executive vice president for foreign affairs. So... A little bit about Ms. Frances Townsend. She was head of intelligence for the Coast Guard and was Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice's counterterrorism deputy. In 2004, none other than President George W. Bush himself appointed her to his intelligence advisory board. And do you think he called her Franny? He gave everybody nicknames. He might have. Yeah. He might have. I feel like he would. I'm going to call her Franny. But maybe she um, was like, no, I'm a, I'm a woman in a yeah. professional place. You have to call me Ms. Townsend. Yeah. Mr. Bush, you have to address me with Well, she wouldn't call him Mr. Cop- Bush. She would say Mr. President because he, oh, right. he was the president. I, for, I, I do forget sometimes. Um, Is that because like you, see, you see him at, <laughs> at family gatherings? Yeah, you know, sometimes he'll just show up. He every time it's like a little uninvited, mm. but like it's almost like kind of like a sitcom neighbor. You know, he'll just kind of show up and like like the door will kind of be unlocked because we just kind of expect it to happen. And he'll have a couple beers and like some hot dogs. George W. Bush's uh, not daughter but niece. Her name is Lauren Bush. 
she married the heir of Ralph Lauren. And now her name so, Laura Lauren. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Laura Lauren. Laura Yikes. No, it's Lauren. Lauren. Okay. <laughs> Lauren Lauren. That's Great. that's what happens when you come from one of these families. You just end up with a stupid name. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's that old money. I would never um, I marry someone whose last name was my first name. If I loved them, mm-hmm. I'd be like, you need to change your last name. What are we doing? Yeah, we're changing it to my last name. Or my Lauren Loren. Not happening. Absolutely not. Um, you know, as part of her job, uh, you know, Fran uh, helped popularize the term enhanced interrogation techniques. Okay, for the kids at home who are in middle school and who don't yeah. remember 9-11 or the Iraq War, what does enhanced interrogation techniques mean? waterboarding it means torture torture. it means torture um that was uh pretty infamously what was referred to all the acts that took place at guantanamo bay as well as some other places when they were like hey are you are you allowed to be doing these things and you must not be allowed to be doing them since you fly the people that you're doing them to out to Turkey where torture is legal so that you can torture them. Are you torturing people? And they'd go, no, no, no. They're enhanced interrogation techniques. We simply have developed the technology to enhance our our interrogation techniques to be even more cruel and evil and terrible and efficient they were before and that's an improvement that's efficient Mm -hmm. that's an important it's an important update an ios update that we made to our interrogation techniques ios Um, is coming so they're on their way (laughs) yeah (laughs) miss like townsend literally like founded that idea of enhanced interrogation techniques. So she is she is an evil, evil lady. Well, she helped um, popularize it. We're not going to give her all the yeah. credit. Yeah, she popularized it, and that does still make her an evil, evil lady, but she didn't create it, I'll say that. Um, Lieutenant Colonel Stephen L. Jordan, the officer in charge of the notorious Abu Ghraib Grabe. prison. It's Abu Ghraib. Grabe. Grabe. Do you remember Abu that? Grabe prison. Do you remember that? The prison? Yeah. Okay. For yeah. for our, our listeners at home and in their car, uh, extreme content warnings yeah. for, for yeah. torture if you decide yeah. to look that up. But if you want yeah. the, the basic of it, it was a prison in Iraq run by the U.S. military where they humiliated and psychologically and physically tortured um people that they had detained there hundreds of people yeah um you know uh jordan colonel jordan basically alleged that townsend you know fran fran put pressure on him to ramp up the torture program reminding him quote many many times that he needed to improve the intelligence output from the jail so yeah, it turns out when you're Francis torturing Townsend, people, you're not really going to get good torture. information. 
Yeah, it turns out you're going to get really bad information from people who are under duress, who are um, psychologically, physically unable to give you uh, proper, accurate, or true information. But um, in Miss Townsend's defense, okay, she denied the allegation. She said, that's simply mm, not true. Everyone she hates said, a girl boss. They're trying to take a girl boss town. However, she kind of contradicted herself a little bit later in an interview with CNN because she condemned the handcuffing and humiliation surrounding Abu Ghraib. And you would think maybe that by that, she means the literal uh, handcuffing and humili- humiliation that took place in Abu Ghraib. But she is not referring to the prisoners. And in that interview, she went on to lament that these career professionals had been subject to humiliation after details of their actions were made public. And the handcuffing was more that future administrations would be metaphorically handcuffed by the fear of yeah. bad publicity it's it's simply <laughs> it's simply metaphorical hazel grace it's a metaphor and that the <laughs> intelligence community would sadly become more risk averse um <laughs> risk averse when talking about torture she is fucking rich was posed to become the director of national intelligence um, or the secretary of homeland security during the Trump administration because obviously the like queen of torture. Well, I, yeah, I guess you would think that being involved or directing the actions at, at Abu Ghraib would maybe hold someone back career wise, but you would be wrong. If you thought that mm-hmm. that was the case for anyone involved in it, um, and for so anyone involved in the Bush administration, period. <laughs> yeah, Trump actually approached her to be the director of the FBI, but she turned mm-hmm. all that down to pursue her dream of gaming and became an yeah, executive. She's in love with the greatest gamer. She wants to be the greatest gamer. Okay, she's not mm-hmm. in love. She's she's a girl boss. She doesn't need True. a man by her True. side to play a game. She and wants so to be the greatest gamer. She turned Trump down, and she yeah. became an executive at Activision. There are some other people in addition to our Atlantic Council heads that should be mentioned, such as Activision Blizzard's chief administration officer Brian Bulatow, which I think might be yeah. might be Italian. He is a former army captain and a consultant for McKinsey until 2018. Uh, or Sorry, and he was a consultant for McKinsey. And until 2018, he was a chief operating officer for the CIA, which made him third in command of the agency. But then after Trump lost the election, he went straight from the State Department to Activision Blizzard where, again, he's the chief administration officer, pretty high up, no former experience in the gaming yeah. industry, went yeah, straight find, to the top, just like Lana Del Rey. Yeah, gonna, yeah just like Lana Del Rey. You're going to find, um, as we talk about Activision Blizzard, um, they love their former intelligence officers. Well, we've got... Uh, they consider that to be... We've got a few more. Because we have yeah. Grant Dix- Dixton. Grant. Grant Dixton. Not yep, a great Dixton. name. But nope. Grant Dixton, between 2003 and 2006, he was the associate counsel to, once again, President 
George W. Bush, advising him on some some of the more controversial legal activities of his administration, including torture again and the expansion of the surveillance state under the Patriot Act. He is a lawyer and he went on to work for the weapons manufacturer Boeing, where he became the senior vice president of Boeing, general counsel and corporate secretary. But then in June 2021, he left Boeing yeah. To pursue his love of gaming and become yeah. Activision Blizzard's chief legal officer. You know, I was talking to a friend the other day who shall remain nameless, and I was telling them about the episode we were doing, and I mentioned Boeing, and they were like, I thought that was the airplane company. Well, um, I thought they made just airplanes. What do you, like, what well, do you think the airplanes, airplanes are used for? <laughs> <laughs> they, like, what? Yeah, I was like, they were like, oh, I thought they were like commercial airliners. Aww, so I think cute. there's a reason why this episode is necessary. I love you, but. No. That's cute. Um, <laughs> another Activision Blizzard executive is a is senior vice president and chief information security officer, Brett Wallen, who was the U.S. Army counterintelligence agent um, and then chief of staff, Angela Alvarez, who until 2016 was an Army chemical operations specialist. And again, both of them quit their careers in intelligence and chemical operations to pursue their I'm love sure. of gaming and I'm sure how they would they would describe it is is that they were tired of the public sector and they went private you know um well to make to, to make any of this make any sense we have to we got to go back in time a little bit and there is a little yeah. organization that you might want to know about called the Institute for Creative Technologies. Maybe by the name of it, you're thinking, is this like CalArts? Is this a CalArts <laughs> type institute? This, what kind of... Will I become Rebecca Sugar if I, if I apply here? What kind of creative technologies are we, are we talking about? Well, it's, it is actually a little bit like CalArts. Um, but it is also funded by the army to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. And the ICT's declared mission is to build a partnership among the entertainment industry, army, and academia with the goal of creating <laughs> synthetic experiment experiences so compelling that participants react as if they are real. Um, so, you know, kind of like CalArts. And this story goes all the way back to the House of Mouse. Yes. Um, so let me paint you a picture. Um, at the mid-1990s meeting of the Army Science Board, that services senior scientific advisory body, uh, four-star general Paul Kern met with Brad Farron, an entertainment industry futurist. And Farron was the influential head of creative technology at Walt Disney's Imagineering. Um, he was he was like one of the top Imagineers, um, and he was also part of the uh, design and development arm of the Walt Disney Company. Um, so this is the '90s were like a very peak time for uh, the Disney Company in particular. They had a lot of like really. Uh, you know, top engineers working at the company. Um, so when uh, General Kern began meeting with um, 
Brad um, on and off. Brian. Bran. Um, Bran. Oh, Bran. His name is Bran. <laughs> Jesus. Really short for Brandon. Jesus Christ. Yeah, I hope so. Because, um, man, unfortunate. Um, really great to the book. Bran. Yeah, <laughs> he's very he's a he's a very regular guy, you can say. <laughs> um, <laughs> according to um, the book Warplay by Corey Mead, um, General Kern's like first thought upon meeting Bran, um, where he, he was wearing a tan explorer's jacket and had like untamed facial hair, was quote. What's this crazy liberal doing here in the middle of our organization? Little so he, did he know. if you've ever seen if you've ever seen Independence Day, he was like Jeff Goldblum with his like crazy hair and like his Hawaiian shirt coming in and he's like, I've got the scoop, I've got all the I've got all the equations. Um and they're like, ah, oh, go away, crazy liberal crackpot. Um, but then it turns out he's right, aliens do exist. Um so they began meeting regularly, sometimes at the Imagineering headquarters and other times at his office in the Pentagon. Mm. Super fun. Um, their conversations went everywhere, according to them. But uh, Farron took pains, quote unquote, to uh, emphasize to General Kern, uh, quote, you got to be where the action is. And so what he meant by that is if the military wanted to be part of the um, the technology base in Hollywood, the emerging, like, the burgeoning, I guess, like, frontier of, like, what I guess you could say will, will become, like, Silicon Valley. If they wanted to um, be in, on, in the Californian ideology, which you can read about exactly. in the Californian ideology. In the ideology. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you wanted to be a part of that, then they had to establish a presence within California, within that, like, within state. Silicon Valley specifically. Yeah, they gotta it they gotta start networking. Comes fucking back to Silicon Valley, and yeah, so as always, our man Paul Kern, four star general Paul mm-hmm. Kern, was so impressed by Bran Farron, Disney executive. Um, Disney Imagineer. It, they don't I call don't them executives. They call them Imagineers. But I don't know what that Just is. Like how they call their employees cast members. It's Imagineer. No, but they work at the park. Essentially, yeah. Imagine- this is like a guy well, in a suit. Well, he's not wearing a well, suit. He's like clearly. the director of. He's the director of Imagineering, which the the people who are Imagineers, they're people who design the rides and the experiences. So they're mainly like they have engineering degrees and tech degrees. So you could say, like, especially in the 90s, they were a part of, like, the beginning of Silicon Valley. There's a couple books on, like, Disney that you can read. Um, I'll find them and I'll put them in the description. Um, Specifically on, like, the corporate takeover, the technology that came out. Um, It's really interesting, but it's not what we're talking about. Well, I'm not going to call him an Imagineer because it's it's stupid. It's like when you go to a fucking restaurant. I like bringing up their silly little You have to call the burger a silly name in order to get a burger. And it's like, fuck you. I don't want to do that. I don't want to (laughs) play by your games. So Paul Kern, he met Disney executive Bran Farron and was like, I really like the way that you do things around here. 
And so he went, he hightailed back to the Pentagon and he charged his subordinates with making the military more like Disney. He was like, we gotta, <laughs> we gotta change things here. Because the military we gotta start selling corn dogs on the bases. <laughs> no, well, no, but the military for decades legs. had been on the forefront of developing technology, but all of a sudden they were lagging behind great institutions such as the House of Mouse. And so he mm-hmm. was like, why can't we? develop our capabilities now to match what the entertainment industry has. And so there's a little guy, Michael Zida, who is responsible for how they did that. Michael Zida is probably one of the people that are like most responsible for the partnership between the military and the entertainment industry, along with a bunch of fucking undergraduates. And again, he's like our Tom Bombadil. Let me tell you, let me tell you, every institution of higher education in the West, besides Evergreen, the Evergreen State College located in Olympia, Washington, not to be confused with any other, all of them are bastions (laughs) of, of pure evil. But he was working with some undergrads making lasers and chemicals and experiments and whatever. And among his coworkers are some names that maybe will be familiar to you or not. They are allegedly legends in the, and this is a quote from the, the book Warplay by Corey Mead, mm-hmm. the annals of computing. That can't possibly, but oh, I'm going to say annals. <laughs> All right. There are legends in the in the anal annals of computing, and those guys, Anals. the annals, um, those guys are Bud Tribble and Bill Atkinson. Atkinson was the eleventh ever employee of Apple Computers. He is the creator of MacPaint, QuickDraw, and HyperCard. And Tribble, not a great name. But he yeah, managed like the, the weird furry things from Star Trek. What? There's there's this I remember in ninth grade biology, my teacher made us watch the um Star Trek episode The Trouble with Tribbles from the sixties. And it's about this like rabbit-esque fluffy orb that just like keeps procreating and like dividing itself until there's like so many that they're taking over the I don't know about that shit. I read books. Yeah. Mr. Tribble. Scratch that off your bingo card once again. <laughs> he managed the original Macintosh software development team, and he helped design the first Mac OS and user interface. And in 1988, the Army tasked Michael Zida with building a simulation system for the FOG-M which is the fiber optic guided missile. And it was the earliest version of a drone. It um, had a TV camera in the front and a fiber optic cable in the back. And then a soldier who was watching a video screen would use their little joystick, which at the time was not an Xbox controller, but I do not know what kind of joystick they were using, unfortunately. I would assume... Something like, if they're talking about joystick, they're probably talking about, like, an Atari. It's like a little stick and, like, maybe one button. Yeah. And so you just move the stick. Well, the soldier the button when you would move that stick indeed, 
and then tried to crash it into the intended target. And so Michael Zida helped build that. Then he, in the 90s, received a call from the National Research Council, inspired by our man, General Curran, who was like, we got to turn, we got to turn the military into Disney. Um, And so they called him because they had just received funding from the Pentagon's director, Anita Jones. um, And she's the director of defense research and engineering. She was responsible for overseeing the department's technology and science program. DARPA and their research laboratories, and she was trying to put together a conference on a report of areas of potential collaboration between the defense and entertainment industries. They were trying to turn the Pentagon into the House of Mouse, and they asked Michael Zida if he would chair the committee. So he went to Orlando. There's a lot of people taking trips to Florida in this episode. Yeah, yeah. So she goes to Orlando. She tours Disney Quest. She has an epiphany at Disney Quest. I have never been to Disney. Disney Quest was so, very specifically it when I, I I as soon as I saw Disney Quest my my brain lit up because I I had heard about this before. Um shout out fucking Defunct Land on YouTube. Um but Disney Quest was like this big blue building and they were like what if we made in the theme park just this building full of video games and they were like we have these alternate reality 90s CGI games and they basically were like showing off a bunch of different technology that they could use for like Disney licensed games so inside of like a theme park where you're riding rides you're out in the sun you can also go inside this large windowless building and play video games and it lasted for like oh my god how many years i have the wikipedia page open yeah it was from like it was for like a year um oh no no i'm wrong it was open in 1998 and then closed in 2017 so disney quest like very specifically was an area like filled with like ar simulation technology like video game stuff so there's there's a reason why her brain like lit up when she went there. Um <laughs> uh she you know went to Disney Quest. Um she was you know hit with inspiration, like a divine intervention. Um and she realized like she's paying all these Pentagon outfits heaps and heaps of money to build these large-scale visual simulations and yet here she is in Disney Quest and realizing that like all these Disney employees have done it far better and for a lot, a lot cheaper. And that realization led her to fund uh, Michael Zida's National Reca- uh, Research Council Conference and Study. So the conference um, took place in Irvine, California. And this was in 1996. And so mm-hmm. we have two very different groups involved creating sort of a a dialectic, some might call it, when there are two things. One of those groups were all the military representatives um, from all of the various military services of, of technology. So you have the Defensive Modeling and Simulation Office, DARPA, the Office of the Secretary of Defense. But then the other group has Paramount, Disney, mm-hmm. Pixar, 
and industrial light and magic. And so Michael Zaida wanted to capitalize on the technological advantages that were coming out, not just from the military, but also in the worlds of entertainment and technology as well. And the specifics of those advances like varied between those fields because they had different goals. Pixar was trying to do different things than the defense and modeling simulation office at the time. But Michael Zaida felt that there was one key point at which they overlapped that was going to be really key for future military development, and that was simulation. And so the Zaida Committee's final report called Modeling and Simulation, Linking Entertainment and Defense. It claimed that sharing research results, coordinating research agendas, and working collaboratively when necessary, the entertainment industry and the DoD may be able to more efficiently and effectively build a technological base for modeling and simulation that will improve the nation's security and economic performance. So he goes so, to oh, go ahead. To sum up for everybody at home and like, in their cars. This, yeah, and in their cars. You know, you're a little tipsy. Um, this committee was really the beginning of them finalizing an idea of like let's let's share all of our research on technology. Let's coordinate. Let's make sure that we are like all on the same path and we're in lockstep here. Right. Because this was not the beginning of the U.S. military developing video game technology, which we'll get into in a little bit. They had been doing that for a while. But this was the beginning of like the intentional partnership between the entertainment industry, which is, you know, goes beyond video games. It makes up movies and television shows as well. Um, and the Defense Department, but not just for like propaganda collaborating, which had been going on since at least the, the 90s before that, because yeah. of World War World oh, War right. Two, World War One, and World War One, maybe. Oh, I thought maybe I thought maybe like with like the early like silent films, like you know, they did they did do some propaganda. Not an episode about film. We'll have to find out yeah. for you all if you want if you want us to learn about that. But the the collaboration <laughs> between the entertainment industry and the military for the purpose of propaganda had been ongoing. But this was the beginning of an intentional partnership to share technologies that the entertainment industry was using in order to help develop military technologies. Um yeah. And so in March 1999, after this conference, Michael Zaida went to the Pentagon to meet in person, and he spent the next three months working on setting up what was going to be the ICT. And he had been promised the position of ICT director, but Kendall, can you make a sad noise? Sad noise. Aww. Sad. Um, Aww. Even though he had been promised this position of director, it had instead gone to former Paramount television executive Richard Lindheim, who was a... Lindheim, yeah. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> He's, he, was, he was a Star Trek guy and also a close friend of the University of Southern California Dean Elizabeth Daly, because once again, every institution of higher education in the West that is not the Evergreen State College is a bastion of pure evil. And this really like cements the partnership between the 
military and the entertainment industry because rather than giving the position of director to this guy that had been incubated basically in the in creating technology and working with academics to create technology for the military they instead gave it to someone that was going to have a lot of entertainment industry connections more than Michael yeah. Zida would um yeah, they and- prioritized a networking like um they prioritize networking over like somebody within their own ranks. And you know what's so um, sad is that Michael Zida had spent most of 1997 doing tech consulting for. Did you say it's Lind? Lindheim. Lindheim, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and he had helped advise him on building the story drive engine for Star Trek Voyager, which is those are just some words that I'm saying. I do not know what that is. You do not need to tell me. I do not care about star trek just a video if i just see story drive engine i'm thinking gaming engine i'm sh- i'm pretty sure it's a video i don't need game. to know don't want to know michael zida didn't let he didn't let this rejection stop him and so he decided to create his own research institute at the naval postgraduate school um and he used linking entertainment and defense as a template he set up the moves institute and moves is modeling virtual environments and simulation and it was staffed by a combination of researchers and graduate students dedicated to modeling and simulation with a core emphasis on computer gaming and so between moves in ICT they really pioneered a lot of the research and the technology that was later used in um both like entertainment video games as well as training software which we will be learning about yeah in and it's the episode. it's clear that like if you just go by the timeline of like this is the 90s we're looking forward towards like the rest of like uh history in gaming specifically the 90s are like the beginning of the what we would consider now the modern form of gaming um it's not just like you know three pixels on a computer playing pong now it's something a little more complicated a lot more narrative and heavily heavily based on like burgeoning technologies within Silicon Valley. And so from the jump, so much of like what would be developed into like key elements of what we now see as part of like the gaming industry um, that was developed directly alongside of military um, training simulations military technology and when and, when we and say often from in collaboration jump, with that we mean like from the 1950s yeah yeah we mean from the 1950s but i'm thinking like with this thing like moves and things like that these institutions and these people became key players within the development of like new technologies within video games that like a lot of people who are probably listening um have seen used yeah um, every day now and just knowing that like this wasn't just a movement that was like they weren't isolated from each other the gaming industry wasn't just like separate from the military industry in terms of like what is now seen as like the modern games industry well they and were, like closely linked from a very very early point i feel like the the this like point of collaboration between the entertainment industry and the us military comes from the U.S. military reached a point where the technology that they were developing themselves 
was no longer cutting edge. And so they needed to partner with the private sector because until the 1990s, maybe the 1980s, depending on what you want to look at, um, like the U.S. military really was on the cutting edge of computer technology. And in fact, like most of the technology that we use today is like built off the foundation of research that was publicly funded by the U.S. military for the purposes of creating military technology, like all early computer technology was like publicly funded for that purpose. And so the like roots of the military's involvement with video games, like it does go beyond the 90s, but it is like very tied to this ongoing relationship between itself and like computer technology. Um, So from the 1960s to the early 1990s, like the armed forces took the lead in financing, sponsoring, and inventing the specific technology that was used in video games. Um, But, and I, and I feel like there, like that is a really key part of it is that this like symbiotic relationship, like it comes from that foundation. And so even though they ended up borrowing entertainment technology, like or technology from the entertainment industry, if it weren't for that foundation, like the commercial game industry itself wouldn't wouldn't exist. exist. Yeah. So it's, it's built on a foundation that collaborative uh, relationship is, um, you know, as strong as Teflon and it's been around for a very, very, very long time. Yeah. Advanced (laughs) computer systems, computer graphics, the internet, multiplayer network systems, 3D navigation of virtual environments, like all of those things were funded by the Department of Defense and video games would not be able to exist without them. Yeah, I mean, uh, they video games themselves uh, derive from preparations for nuclear war cool. and space exploration. Lame. Um, you know, the, the space race. Which we lost, the, by the, the way. We lost. The U.S. We lost did, the space race. And we just race. kept making up new rules. Yeah. We were just like, okay, the first person to go into space. And then they were like, well, we, the Russia was like, okay, we did it. And then they were like, well, the first person to go to the moon then is the first person. Who which we didn't space. do. That shit was fake. you landed. Yeah. Which we, we totally faked. Um, it was fake. <laughs> virtual okay what um (laughs) nothing (laughs) well you think the moon landing was real you think they did that (laughs) Uh, not this next thing you're gonna tell me is that you believe in fucking dinosaurs you think the moon landing was real not this i would know (laughs) this one i won't yes and you on i don't want to end up somewhere on some like Donut emojis block list. So um, no, you don't think that the moon landing was oh real. You agree with me. It was fake. Sure. <laughs> and they and they just put the dinosaur bones there to, to mess with us. <laughs> there were no yeah. dinosaurs. Yeah. Yeah, you know. They were made out of paper mache. Um <laughs> anyway, um the first <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, get let's back, get about, back to the back. topic. Get back to the topic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I don't need to transition. Too cowardly um. <laughs> to debate the moon landing with me. Just because yeah. it was your ancestor that faked we it. Are an, we're an hour and 15 minutes in. I am not going to spend the next couple minutes debating uh-huh. the moon landing with you. Because it didn't happen. Um, I'm 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 being an efficient podcaster. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm doing. False. I'm being efficient. Cowardly. Um, <laughs> I'll wait. Anyway, um <laughs> argue, arguably the first digital game uh was a faux military simulation and it was called Space War exclamation point. Um the game itself was invented in 1962 by 23-year-old Steve Russell. And his band of merry misfits um, in the fictitious <laughs> and not real uh, Hingham Institute study group on space warfare, which was, quote, a collection of like minded Pentagon funded engineering graduate students at MIT. Um, MIT, so, everyone. MIT. MIT. What am, what am I going to say? All institutions of Western education. Higher education in the West. Higher education in the West are evil. Bastions of pure evil. Bastions of pure evil. Um, MIT stands for Massachusetts. Massachusetts Institute um, of Technology, which is also where Dunkin' Technology. It's where Dunkin' Donuts is. Which America runs mm. on. Um, yeah. Russell and his little, his cohort peers, they were funded by the Pentagon in the burgeoning military industrial complex at the time. That was brand new. And their research was um, going towards fighting the Soviet Union in the Cold War. They were, were not they, but I guess the entire United States minus all the cool people, were shocked and upset by the Soviets' 1957 Sputnik launch. And so they were like, we got to throw as much money as we can at science and technology funding. And most of it was channeled through the Pentagon's Advanced Research Projects Agency. And so that included... Hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Parpa. Um, that included nuclear mobilization, ballistics, space defense, missilery, and hackers. Self, yeah, self-disclaimed or self-proclaimed hackers, such as Russell. Can you really be a hacker if you work for the institution? But you know, maybe those are the only hackers that there are. Um, Mm, but he and his friends, they were in a. At, they would call it precarious position in this environment because they loved freedom. They loved playing around. They loved being on the edge of society, but they were obviously taking their money and their, and like their direction from the military. And according to them, they were harshly disillusioned from their work by Vietnam and Watergate. I, I, I don't care. Um, but that is what they say. And so in their work, they developed space war, exclamation point. So like space war. Um, space war. And it was not 
like really the thing that they were supposed to be making, but it was an immediate hit among the network of computer programmers occupying university research institutes funded by the Pentagon worldwide. Um, Within just a year after making the game Space War, um, it had grown so popular that Stanford University's computer studies Mm. department, they had to institute a rule that said no space war during business hours. Um, And by the mid-1960s, the game was on virtually every computer research, like computer in the country, Um, whether it was academia, industry, or military. There also were not other video games, so... This is yeah, not a testament to how good it was. Game. It was just it was no, the no, only no. game. I want you, to, dear dear listener, I'd love you. I'd love for you while you're in the car, um, drinking your beer. Maybe take your other hand off the wheel and Google the do a Google image search of Space War and see how yeah. fun it looks to you. We love it when our listeners text and drive. It makes me text, so happy to hear drive. about it. Yeah, yeah. Use your knees. Don't forget to use your <laughs> knees while while steering. Um, <laughs> until the early 1960s, um, they were, computers were basically just like a fancy calculator. Well, not um, only were they, and they were basically just a fancy calculator, but that was what people's like imagination of what a computer could do was like yeah. all that people thought that a computer was for and like the improvements that they wanted to make on it was to do advanced computing, you know, hence the name. Yeah. So it was just like, this is Mathematics. a an insanely powerful calculator that we can use to help us like accomplish tasks and not for like creative endeavors such as making space war space war um space war um and maybe like they could use them for like modeling on certain things but um that's still math yeah that's still that's still math but it's like it's all just like very complicated mathematics is what they're looking for for these computers um but Russell and the other young hackers in his little group um, <laughs> introduced the radical notion that computers could also be tools for entertainment and not just calculations. Um, Space War. Space War. Wasn't exciting. <laughs> like, it, it, again, it wasn't exciting because, like, ooh, what a fun game to play. Um it was exciting because it introduced like a whole new way of looking at computers and it, it it brought a new imagination to what this technology could be um that just simply did not exist um within a few years uh the emphasis on enjoyment with computers um became like the beating heart of the growing video games industry. And so that's video like games. that's like where you can see the divergence in yeah. like um this technology being developed funded by the military for military use and then the same technology being developed in a totally different sphere um and why there was so much difference between the two of them. Like video games were not cr- like created for the purpose of military use but it came out of an environment where the entire reason that it existed was because of like defense research funding yeah and trying to defeat the ussr which they did not do which they lost which they lost 
but severely. The military did develop like a specific interest in gaming itself um, in the late 1970s when the Army War College introduced the board game Mech War to its staff officer training curriculum. I would love for someone to look into Mech Mech War and tell me if that's fun to play. You will never catch me playing a, a board game. I do not like them. Um, but much more common than board games during this period was the development of, at the time, high-end computer simulations, not games, for military training. And so the military and the entertainment industry and academia began building what is called DIS, which is Distributed Interactive Simulations, which were simulations that used distributed software or hardware to create virtual theaters of war that participants could interact with in real time. And so those simulations employed like the latest advances in computer graphics and virtual technology. And as that technology continued to advance into the next decade, there was an increasing focus on content and creating compelling narratives brought to those simulations, which made them closer in form to commercial video games. But there was not the same intention behind them of like yeah. entertaining the player or being enjoyable to play, but more no, like it's, recreating it's, a like a wartime situation for yeah. someone to experience during peacetime yeah. or not, it's not more at like war. If you've ever seen like a piece of media where like all these people kind of huddle around a war room and there's just like a big map and a bunch of little pieces. It's basically meant to like simulate military strategy. Yeah, it's it's and not, not meant to be fun. It's not meant to be like a fun game. But that changed um, in the 1980s. The the roaring yeah. 80s with the <laughs> the the groundbreaking game Battlezone released by Atari, which was the first um first person shooter where players got to view the action from a first-person perspective as if they were tank gunners themselves. And in the game Battlezone, it was in like a sci-fi space landscape. So they're looking at the moon and mountains and an erupting volcano in the distance. And this game got the military's in, uh, like attention as something that they might be able to make use of. And it is also the direct ancestor of today's first-person shooter games. Yeah, yeah. Um, as soon as um, Battlezone, like, took off, um, the Army's uh, Training and Doctrine Command, uh, which I'll be referring to in the future as, tri- as TRADOC. Ooh, um, dumb yeah. acronym. Dumb acronym, just like a lot of the acronyms in this uh, episode. Yeah. Um, Parpa. Anyway, um, requ- Parpa, requesting- you made up. Yeah, but it's there. It's there for me to see. Um, anyway, requested Atari's help um, in building a modified version of the game um, that could be used as a training device um, for the then new, like Bradley Infantry fighting vehicle. Um, so it was a new. They had a, they had a new toy, and they wanted um, some. Like a like a training simulation for it um, that they could use. Uh, General Don Starry um, 
head of the of Tradoc at the time. Um, he recognized early on that soldiers are more responsive, shockingly, to uh, electronic training methods than print and lecture based ones. Hmm. Shockingly, jarheads are more interested in what's happening on a screen a than jarhead. reading a book. Uh, like a, I I think it's a it's like a like an army guy. So you're just but, using a slur on these people. You don't even know what it means. It's a slang term for the Marine Corps. So I'm like not entirely. Uh, but you wrong, didn't even you didn't even know right what either. you were saying, and you just called them a mean word. You I'm like I'm know. like saying like they're I I'm trying to like relate it to like oh you're like a meathead. Um, which they, I'm just, you, you're more concerned with the word than the fact that I said that they're not interested, that they're like illiterate. (laughs) Well, I, I assumed that they don't know how to read. Yeah. Well, shockingly, shockingly, they don't like their, their stupid, boring mech war board game and they prefer to, they prefer to play a video game. Actually, I have seen Jarhead on the title of a DVD when I worked in a record store slash movie store very cool of me very gen x of me i always thought that it that it was pronounced jared pretty sure it's jarhead thought it, i thought it was like you know like k like, like a silent h yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. jared <laughs> sorry well, shockingly- tell, me, tell me about tradoc yeah shockingly they didn't like n- none of these military guys liked their silly little board game um, that was really, really boring, and they wanted to play the cool new video game instead. Um, so, while the Army's version of the Battle Zone, also known as the Bradley Trainer, because it was meant to train for that Bradley vehicle, um, it was eventually produced, but the game was actually never used to train any soldiers. Yeah, they were um, still working their shit out. Yeah, um, yeah, they were still figuring it out, getting out all the bumps. Um, but you can see sort of the bones of what became future like military training technology because the like battle zone, which took place in a uh, like a space moon world, they changed that to be like the desert, you know. But the the game is still very similar in the way that it's played. But you can see the way that like they're trying to emulate real world military engagements as a but like through a video game in order to train people and so the military's efforts like it still moved a step forward even though they didn't end up using this game after darpa which is i think we've defined it but kendall keeps saying parpa and that's (laughs) not real DARPA is real and it's the defense advanced (laughs) research projects agency there is no PARPA. There's, there's only DARPA. And so DARPA constructed SimNet, which is Simulation Network. I don't know why these military people are obsessed with acronyms, but they are. And SimNet was a real-time distributed networking project for combat simulation. And so until the 80s, simulators were built as like standalone systems that focused on specific tasks like piloting a tank or landing a jet on an aircraft carrier so what that means is that like rather than a video game which is an immersive and you're going from task to task it was like you just play through this simulator and it simulates exactly what it is like 
to pilot a tank and that's it. Mm-hmm. The thing is, is that each of these systems cost tens of millions of dollars to create, which was often Jesus. twice the amount of the real systems that the soldiers were training for. The reason for this is pretty funny and we'll get to that in a second, but yeah, put they, try, they try to um, correct this expensive and unwieldy practice And so they drafted um, Air Force Captain Jack A. Thorpe in 1982. Uh, And he had floated the idea that simulators didn't need to physically replicate the full vehicles that they were representing. Because this is why they were so expensive. When they were building in in the E world a tank, they tried to build a tank like as it as it would physically be made in the real world yeah virtually and so needed to like get each piece of that technology down perfectly and so it took brain genius jack a thorpe to be like you don't need to do that you can just make something that looks like a tank because all of that the person that's using all, it virtually build needs, all the parts <laughs> needs to be taught is like the mechanics of using it you don't need to build a real tank you just, just need to build something that teaches someone how to use a real tank in I'm the just real imagining world all of the uh military personnel being like well first we've got to build the virtual people that'll build all the virtual parts and then there's so build dumb. all the builders that are gonna build the tank itself and now oh my god it cost us 10 million dollars no make literally all virtual people in parts that's <laughs> So the example he used was aircraft. You don't need to use a simulator to teach an Air Force pilot like everything that they need to know about flying because they have a plane that they can do that. What instead they should be using the simulators for is teaching a pilot what they would be needing to know about a plane that they couldn't learn just from piloting a plane in real life. Things that happen in warfare that they wouldn't be able to know from peacetime. Um, And so... What his main goal was with these simulations was trying to change these like single pilot simulations that were incredibly physically accurate to be ones that could teach group skills. Because as Jack A. Thorpe says, group interactions are the most complicated combat operations. They also tend to be the ones in which the costs of screwing up are the highest. Yet it is so difficult and expensive to organize groups Pilots get very little training in collective skills. They have to learn these skills on the job, during combat, which makes casualties disproportionately high during the first few missions. So it took this this guy being like, what if we simulated the thing that we don't do in in the virtual world (laughs) instead of trying to build literally a plane from scratch? A a picture-perfect version of a plane. Right, because why do they need a picture-perfect version of a plane when they just have a plane that they can learn to pilot? Why not instead use the virtual technology to simulate the circumstances of flying a plane? Even if you need them to see the parts inside of a plane or a tank, you have those parts. Already. So dumb. You have all these things so at your disposal. These are the people that run our country. The quote, uh, group interactions are the most complicated combat operations. I would argue as an autistic person, yes, they are. Okay. All right. <laughs> anyway, 
he looked <laughs> to make uh, he looked to affordable and like non Department of Defense technology, such as existing computer and video games, to make this vision a reality. But he hired military contractors Bolt, Baranek, and Newman to develop the networking and system software necessary to bring SimNet to life. And so by January 1990, the first SimNet units were ready to go. The Army stepped in first, and they bought several uh, units for their close combat tactical trainer system. And SimBit's training value became apparent one year later during... Drum, drum roll. What happened? What happened in 1991? The Gulf War. The Gulf War. That's right. And in the Gulf War's most significant engagement, which is known as the Battle of 73 Easting, the U.S. Second Army Cavalry Regiment destroyed dozens of Iraqi fighting vehicles in just under two hours, while killing or wounding more than 600 Iraqi soldiers. And the Second Armored Cavalry had prepared for the war by training extensively on Simnet. Um, so after that, the military decided to use the Battle of Seventy Three Easting as a model for future network training, and it like was an example of the success of using this kind of technology to train the U.S. military for combat situations that they wouldn't be able to train for at home or or using like the physical technology that they had. And the results of this effort also like pointed the way towards the future of military training, which would be like immersive, interactive, and variable scenarios, which brought the total experience of war together, rather than like individually getting into an individual simulation of a tank and learning how to mm -hmm. drive the tank around. Instead, like putting. Um, the like military officers into scenarios where like the total experience of war could be brought forth in digital replication, which never was possible before in military training. <laughs> yes. Well, I, we're not proud of them. I'm presenting yeah. this information in a neutral slash distasteful way. I'm not happy no, I mean, about I it. I mean, like before the ways that they would do it, we're not working out because what they well, thought about in terms of digital replication was like, let's make sure that all of this is like biologically accurate. Yeah. But it's like also where. like, it, it was like represented. It makes sense to me, I guess that it took them a while to understand that they could use it for something completely different than what they had, had done before with it. And I guess the idea was like, we currently train people on how to fly a plane we can also use virtual technology to train people how to fly a plane. And there wasn't this like imagination of like, we can train people to right. know what it is like to be in combat without ever sending them into combat. Like that's a total right. it's leap similar, of imagination. It, it's, it's similar to the, to the leap of imagination between space war and calculator, you know, where it's like, okay, of course, like this, this computing machine is meant for calculating large sums of numbers and not um they they can't really push their brains to think about it in terms of like what else it could do like, yeah because it's imagining narratives. a completely different use for the technology than existed before and this simulation mm -hmm. was given so much of the credit for the military's gulf war successes and so after the gulf war 
uh, DARPA's and SimNet's like related research and developments expanded significantly. And the next yeah. big step in their video game history was Kendall. Maybe you yeah. know about this. Do you know about the I do the 1993 first person shooter fantasy Doom? Yes, I do. Doom is a sci-fi adventure. You um, play as this big-chinned, blonde, crew-cut, camo-wearing American man, um, and you are in space. You are shooting lots of different, like, body horror-looking. It's like a half-first-person shooter, half-sci-fi horror game. Um, It's a game that, like, the classic version of Doom, because of the way that it's programmed, I don't know everything about it, but I do know that, like, the simplicity of its programming um, and some other complicated shit that has to do with like, you know, coding and stuff like that. Um, it can allow you to play it on like a lot of different electronic systems. I've seen people learn how to play, uh, basically hack a electronic pregnancy test hmm. to learn how to play doom. It's, well, it's one of those things that's like very unique. Um, but um, Timothy Lenoir, and Henry Lowood, historians of science, have said that Doom is uh, solely responsible for changing practically every facet of PC-based gaming. And I think you can kind of see that. In fact, um, when the uh, John Deere strike was happening, um, there was somebody who um, jailbroke their um, system that basically locks all of the John Deere tractors from um, running if like, you try to repair it yourself. And then ran Doom on that same software. So it's it's like it's a game that still to this day is extremely adaptable and um, used a lot for a lot of different um, models um, currently in gaming and in modern gaming. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Around uh, the same time that Doom was released, um, the Marine Corps. Uh, Modeling and Simulation Office, again, another acronym, MCMSO. It's not even a good um, one. It's not even a good one. I can't even, MACMSO, I can't even, I can't even do anything fun with that. Um, <laughs> Main Crush Monday, t- SO. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hags. <laughs> like, um, res- they, so, MCMSO received a mandate from the annual general officers symposium to begin looking at commercial video games that might prove uh useful for training um and because like the marine corps as an institution within the military industrial complex their budget Hmm. is um their budget is like significantly smaller um than a lot of the other services uh, the core have like a really long history of seeking cost-effective training solutions. The They're cheap. ballers on a budget. The They're ballers um, on a budget. <laughs> They're ballers on a budget. General Charles Krulak, uh, the Marine Corps commandant at the time, um, believed that PC-based war games um, held a lot of potential for teaching the Marines uh, critical decision-making skills. Um, <laughs> in my opinion, <laughs> yeah, like I like. I was gonna say, like in my opinion, see, um, this is like you saying are known for that their you are learning to read by playing whatever it is that you're playing. I'm not learning to read. <laughs> whatever what it is that you said, whatever you said, 
Whatever. So the the M the Man Crush Mondays, they immediately begin combing through various military related military themed video games to see if any of them might be useful to develop for training. And they developed the personal computer based war games catalog online where they posted reviews of the various games that they uh, investigated. And so one of them was Doom, but actually it was its its sequel, Doom 2, that they felt fit their needs for like a military training game the best. And Doom's developer, ID Software, had released parts of the game as shareware and encouraged players to like enact their own modifications as a way to market the game. And so they made use of that shareware and throughout the spring and summer of 1996, they transformed the gothic fantasy outer space game into just like a straightforward military fire team simulation. And so no more was there like Martian terrain or alien demons, but instead it was like a desert landscape and you know who they were instead of aliens. And the cost of production was just $49.95, which I don't know what that is in like $1995. Maybe that's like $100. But I guess as far as military training software goes, pretty cheap. And it was the price of just like a copy of regular Doom 2. They called this game Marine Doom. Um, and they they created it at a time when the Pentagon was like beginning to embrace simulation for a broad range of activities because they were trying to turn into Disney, as we said. Scholar Sharon Gamari Tabrizi says that these activities included part task training, mission rehearsal, operational planning, strategic and tactical analyses, weapons systems modeling during research and development, testing and evaluation and acquisitions, and long-range future studies. And a lot of this comes not just from like the desire to turn into Disney, but also because at one point the military had to downsize. I'm not really sure what changed, but after the Cold War and the Soviet Union collapsed, the military's budget was reduced because Congress assumed that there was like no longer mm. this great geopolitical threat. They no needed no longer needed to have this massive budget. I have not been alive um, that long. I guess um, my entire life, the the United States has been at war with someone. So maybe that's why. But I just can't imagine any scenario where the U.S. military gets its budget reduced. Yeah. Um, that just doesn't seem it's just it's just Possible. hard to imagine hard to imagine but because of yeah. this they needed to like look for more economical trading solutions because their budget had been cut and so the relative like affordability of simulation technologies was something really key with their newly tightened budget and so here's an example simnet which was funded like in the Cold War era, when the military was funding early computer technology. It was put together by military contractors. It is the basis for, like, the internet that we have now. 
And it required $140 million in like old timey money. So don't know what that is now. Took 10 years and several hundred employees to build. And it did use some like commercial technologies, but was mostly like publicly funded. Marine Doom relied exclusively on commercial technologies. It was just the shareware of the the game Doom 2. And it was built by eight people in six months for $25,000. So like an extreme, extreme cut of the budget. And it also is the like reason for this partnership between the entertainment industry and the military. The other reason for that is that like defense contractors needed to find other customers that they could sell their little gadgets to because mm-hmm. the the military wasn't they weren't paying anymore. They yeah. they weren't shelling out those dollar bills like they used to. Again, this is is really hard for me to fathom that you couldn't mm-hmm. just get yeah. the military <laughs> to like give you a million dollars for waving anything. your hand, but that is that's what it was like at the time. And so like these defense contractors who were not maybe like military, like employees of the US military, but were like developing technology for them with public money, weren't able to like make the same kind of income that they would have been a decade ago during the Cold War. But fortunately for them, there was suddenly another industry that was like really interested in the same kind of technology that they were developing, which was the entertainment industry and specifically like the gaming industry. And so the relationship that was born out of this outcome was some might say symbiotic, some might say parasitic, Um, Mm -hmm. but defense contractors would spin their technologies into the commercial game industry. And then the commercial game industry would hand it right back to the military. The cyberpunk writer, Bruce Sterling, he called this relationship the military entertainment complex, which was a riff on the military industrial complex. And that was referring to the relentless exchange of technologies, personnel, and money that defines the bond between the military and the video game industry. And that was was part one. Yeah, I think we have more. We've we've personally defined. Um, so the much history more. of like the military entertainment complex, but there's so much more, especially coming into the, we, I mean, we were stuck in the nineties. We haven't even yeah. gotten to 2001 yet. Oh yeah. The you Iraq know? war. That's going to be part two, baby. Yeah. Then two. we got to get into what the fuck is going on with Xbox. Maybe that will be yeah. part three. It depends Microsoft. on how long it takes us to get. Through yeah. the Iraq War, because as Another... you might know, we're still not out of it. We're still in no. it. <laughs> yeah, we're still here for some reason. Oh god. my god! Do you think that maybe that's why we're not out of it? Is they remember their budget getting cut in the nineties, and they were <laughs> and like, they were "Fuck! Like, if we no, do no. too good of a job at war, then we'll lose <laughs> our we'll lose our salaries. We have to we have to be in war forever. I'll have to sell my hot tub. Like God, this this is awful. I have uh, to no. work for Disney." No, there's still a threat. There's so many threats. We have to we have to save America. Um, thank you so much for coming out to part one. Um, another multi part series. We so yeah, I'm I'm not sorry. We have a lot yeah. of things to say. That's and not, that, I didn't say sorry. I said you're welcome. You're, you're welcome. welcome. They like 
like we're giving you food. Yeah. Yummy Make food sure to, to check out patreon.com slash big soy naturals for more episodes. We put out bonus episodes like every week and mm-hmm. uh, stay tuned for part two of the series. Yeah. Bye. We get a weakness. You got to see this. Fucking sick and tired of the Photoshop. Show me something natural like Afro Gold with your prop. Show me something natural like ass with some stretch marks. Still a Sit down.